lectionary, the schedule of readings that we're used to, the three-year common lectionary used by many denominations since the 70s, bids us to reflect on leadership, on what is called the Feast of Christ the King, the last Sunday after Pentecost, or the Sunday just before Advent. That Sunday's readings bring to our reflection the Good Shepherd and the one who is coming in glory and who rules by appearing to us now as the least, those to whom we are to give our attention since at the final judgment, it is that one who will be revealed as judge. The presence of this king in the least is a little like the story about one of my favorite theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who when late into his 80s, he was asked close to his death what he had learned about God in all his years as a theologian. He thought for a moment and responded, God is the last person you spoke to. Today's gospel recounts how Jesus hid himself from his followers when he became aware that they were looking for him to take him captive, to make him king. I want to begin this morning by looking for a moment at the biblical historical accounting of kingship, which we heard referenced in our first reading. The reading from the book of Samuel points us to the origin of monarchy in the biblical story. Ironically, it was the people who demanded the judge Samuel that he give to them a king so they could be like the nations around about them, who were all their enemies. I say it's ironic because the people of Israel were not supposed to be like the nations around about them. They didn't have a king because the Holy One herself was to be their ruler. Yahweh fought their battles as they went out to confront their enemies led by the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the warriors of Israel, blowing the shofar to let their enemies know that the true God had joined the fight. When the people demand that Samuel give them a king, he turns to God in dejection, complaining that the people have rejected him and his children as judges. But the Holy One replies that it wasn't Samuel that they rejected, but God herself they had rejected. So God tells Samuel to give the people what they want, but to warn them that it will be for their judgment because a king will set up for them a standing army because they don't trust God any longer to fight their battles. A standing army means, of course, conscription, a draft, and a military-industrial complex to follow on upon it, a way to feed the military beast in order to deter their ancient enemies from attacking them. And that, of course, requires taxation. 
And before you know it, the whole thing gets out of hand, as we so well know. The military hands down its outmoded equipment to the local police force on the off chance that disgruntled citizens might riot. And to justify this arrangement, new training in the use of this military equipment is required with war game-like rehearsals and repressive incidents that provoke a militarized response to domestic rebellions. The king's monopoly on violence demands legal controls. The end result will be a weapon to end all weapons and a war to end all wars, which threatens to end the world itself, which you can see at the movies today. So God tells Samuel to warn the people that the king will come, with the king will come corruption and the loss of their own sovereign freedom. Now, my favorite anthropological explanation of the origin of monarchy comes from the late French thinker René Girard, who taught for many years at Stanford. Girard, still quite controversial, but now well-accepted theory, is that because of primitive man's highly developed envy and rivalry and its lack of instinctual breaks like other animals have, the only way for humanity to avoid self-destruction was by miraculously agreeing on who to blame for their projections of hatred on one another and to cast out that one as the cause of the crisis. Once the unearthly calm following that unified response at the execution of that scapegoat fell upon the community, they understandably gave thanks to the same victim, designating that one as a god. Over time, religion and law grew out of this tactic of social self-preservation and designated sacrificial victims and to be held for future use when the need arose. And these victims in abeyance became known as monarchs because they were treated with luxury and honor before the next social crisis formed the mob that would do them in. The art of governing developed as a means of keeping the sacrificial ruler alive, a way of currying favor with the rich and powerful who could guarantee the monarch's survival until that crisis came. Well, of course, there is a curious kind of mirror image of the crucifixion here in this picture of the fate of the monarch. The king is dead, long live the king. When the crowd comes to take Jesus, to kidnap him and make him their ruler, Jesus understands perfectly what is going on. He hides and only appears again to the terrified 12 at the darkest hour of the night or the morning, walking on the sea. When he announces to them his presence in the name, he says, I am. Don't be afraid. 
It is the sign that Yahweh gave to Moses at the burning bush, Hashem, the name. It is the same name the high priest wears inscribed in gold on his turban. In that name not only dwells the contents of God, but also the authorization to use that power to bless and bring about God's healing and creating grace by its pronunciation in the holy place on the Day of Atonement. By its proclamation is manifested the power of God. At baptism, all of us were likewise consigned with that name on our foreheads. I want to return to the heavenly peace that I mentioned that settles on the archaic community that in the midst of the existentially threatening violence of all against all, discovered the mechanism of casting out or sacrificing the scapegoat as a kind of magic solution to their common anxiety in the face of a crisis. Think with me, if you will, for a moment of those photographic images that used to be distributed on postcards in the aftermath of lynchings. White faces grinning into the camera gathered around the smoldering human body dangling from a tree. An unearthly mirth that seems to say, wish you were here. Now, of course, while we no longer countenance such actions or traffic in such filth, we still manage our anxiety by fixing blame, by finding a victim. And it must be said that we choose as outcasts from among those in our society with the least power, those who are already almost invisible, the homeless, the aged, racial minorities, migrants, the poor, prisoners, those of no account, to receive the wrath of our castigation, the steely coldness of our disdain. And we do it to try desperately to maintain or regain our sense of peace, our sense of control, our own sense that all is right with us and with the world. It must be said, unfortunately, that this has too often been the function of religion in our society, designating the outsider, castigating the social pariah, stigmatizing those who are different. Politics, the matter of sovereignty, is the arena of sacrifice for us. When we have given up trying to solve our problems by legislation, as we see today, we prefer finger-pointing. And every politician, every office holder, is a potential scapegoat, one who must avoid speaking the truth about certain issues because the anxiety that their words will provoke will soon demand that they walk them back or face being primaried at the next election. 
becoming a sacrifice and losing their seat. Jesus' shrewd awareness of this very dynamic is evident by his frequent withdrawals to the mountain to pray, no doubt sorting out his own reactions to the provocations of the crowd that at one time wants to stone him and at the next wants to make him king. Of course, Jesus is already their king, but they misidentify him. Their misrecognition has not changed from the rejection of Samuel and the choice of Saul. They want the short-term gain of a ruler who will fight their battles, drive out the Romans occupying force, and provide them with food like Jesus did at the feeding of the 5,000. The image of Messiah was originally one of royal priest and prophet, one who would judge with equity and mercy. Jesus is carefully avoiding falling into meeting their expectations, the expectations of the crowd of an earthly ruler by frustrating them and leading them to behold the incomprehensible truth of his unspeakable name, I am who I will be, or I will be what I will be, is what the Hebrew means, or something like that. And it invites an encounter with God as a relationship. It resists understanding God as being, as a being, or even as being itself. And Jesus does this by inviting us to inhabit him and to be inhabited by him. I in God and God in me. So when Jesus chooses to walk his own way of the cross, to occupy that role of the scapegoat, it is in order to enable us to see once and for all that we can no longer scapegoat one another. He does that by becoming for us the final scapegoat, after which all other blaming is simply a degenerate derivative of idolatry, an exercise in the worship of death. The resurrection is not the proclamation of the peace that comes from unity over against some mutually agreed upon enemy until the next crisis comes for which we need a convenient as real as that peace may seem for a while. The resurrection we proclaim is rather the radical acceptance of the fullness of God who is our forgiveness and into our very being, not by force, but by invitation. A God who rules by sharing, who judges by being judged, and by extending to us his own authority and responsibility, and by inviting us to do the same with one another. Amen.